Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life, grant that we, who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection, may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. I hope you're having a blessed and holy Easter today. I hope that, that your worship, wherever you happen to have been this morning, if you have gone to worship today, was was incredibly blessed and spirit-filled. Um, it, it's the easiest day of the year to worship. Um, at least I, I always thought it was, but then I had an experience a few years ago where we were we had an Easter vigil church where we attended, and the the guy who was going to preach that night, the priest, was uh, his his wife was very very pregnant. I was the head usher, and the um, somebody came in and said, "John, you got to go get the priest because there's a problem. She's getting ready to go into labor, and he and she won't go to the hospital unless he comes with her." I said, "Well, he's preaching here in a few minutes." She said, "Doesn't matter. You got to go get her, get him now." And so I went up and retrieved him, and he was the only priest there that evening, and it was still dark in the vigil, so you couldn't see very much, so I went up, and I, and I went up on the altar and said, hey, you gotta, you gotta go, so he left, and then they called uh, the, the rector and to come and celebrate communion for us, and then, so she tasked a deacon with speaking and giving the sermon, so the deacon got up, and her sermon was, well, Greg took the sermon with him, so I hope you have a blessed Easter. Really? You went to seminary. <laughs> you can't wing it on Easter? You can't just, apparently not. So I would have thought that almost everybody in the congregation could possibly have preached a sermon, but apparently not the seminary-trained deacon. We left shortly after that. <clears throat> um so today, I mean, we are celebrating, and it's hard to even think about the other lessons. We'll look at them, but today is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after he had uh, died on the cross on Friday, and and the resurrection is the single most event, important event that ever happened in the history of the world. It's when we didn't just gain eternal life, we, we knew for certain that eternal life was possible because resurrection was possible. And so the, the Lord of all the earth <laughs> was resurrected from the dead on this day and opened the way for us to have eternal life. That, and, and we know that we can because Jesus is resurrected from the dead as the first fruits. It's the promise. It's the fulfillment of the promise. And we know that because he lives, so do we who believe in him, and who are taking his name as Christians. We believe that he was resurrected from the dead. We believe all the things we would say in the creed today. We believe that, that he came down from heaven, became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and was made man, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Um, three days later, he, he was dead indeed and buried, and three days later he rose from the dead. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe all of those things. The central point in human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because what it means is that if we believe in him, then we will share in his inheritance 
will have eternal life. That's the only way to know that you can be experiencing eternal life. And, and further, it makes possible the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh as it had been promised from of old. So it's this incredible moment where the only possible way you can have any assurance that you have eternal life is made possible. All your assurance of eternal life rests on this day. Because there's no other name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. That's Peter's commentary to the Sanhedrin. It's the most important thing that could ever happen in human history. Because what it says is, is, is that to be on the right side of history is to believe in him and to put your full trust in him and to give him your life, to do with it as he wills, to allow the Holy Spirit working within us, us, to live his life and to bring his message and his gospel to the world in every way possible. It, it's unbelievable what happened this day. And of all the people who ever lived including those who are worshipped and revered in other religions, there's one resurrected from the dead. Why would we ever think there were multiple ways to salvation when only one has ever been raised from the dead, and it was attested to by many, many people? And the crazy thing is, is that resurrection seems insane. And in a biological, chemical, physical, earthly way, it is insane. And you know, nobody, I mean, everybody believed in the ultimate resurrection of the dead, but even the people closest to Jesus, as we're going to see in today's gospel, were incredulous and did not come to the same conclusion of even what it meant to see the empty tomb. They didn't know. They had no earthly idea and didn't believe that he had been resurrected in the way that he was resurrected. It's an unbelievable thing. We're going to see this about belief and what does John mean when he says belief because it doesn't mean what you want it to mean at the moment he first says this. So in the, the Old Testament lesson today is Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. It's the, it's the announcement of the, the life to come, what is going to be. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What an amazing thing that will be. Right When we're in the new heaven and the new earth, and our, and our minds won't even think about all the stuff that we worry about in this life now. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, a new, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So these were things that, that the promise that they hear in this at the time when Isaiah is giving this prophecy is to the people who are in exile in Babylon. This is what's known as third Isaiah. And, and so it, what he's doing is giving them hope and he's giving them a vision of the Jerusalem that will be once they return from exile. And so he's showing them this is what a blessed and a wonderful place. God's presence will be there. It'll be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and, and everything will be blessed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands.
Now, I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, probably a daily one. I doubt if I've done it, talked about it on Sunday. But one of the interesting things about some of the language that you see in this and some of the language that's, that comes, for instance, from Jeremiah 29, where he tells them to marry, to have your children be married while you're in exile and also to build houses and to plant vineyards. Those are things that if a man has done those things, if he has gotten married, if he has built a house, or if he's planted a vineyard, then, then he can delay his military service in anything but a defensive effort. If it's an offensive war, then, then those men are exempt from service because the belief is they should enjoy, and not the belief, but God told them this, this part of the law, they should enjoy the fruit of their labor. They should, they should have, en- have the enjoyment of the thing to which they look forward. And so there's varying times that, that that military service can be deferred based on which of those three categories are in it, uh, that you're in. And so it, it's, these are the same kinds of things that they're saying here. They build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. You see that? It's the same thing. It means you can settle in. And that's exactly what Jeremiah told them about their exile in Babylon. Do all those things because you're going to be there a while. So don't... Um, don't pretend this is a short-term thing. No, it's, it's going to be there a while. So do all those things because you're, you're going to have the enjoyment of the house. You're going to have the enjoyment of the vineyard you plant. You're going to have the enjoyment of your wife and the children that will come from that. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. This is peaceable kingdom of God in the new creation, as it, as it was intended to be in this creation. Because what we see is, is that after sin enters the world, that's when enmity between man and the animal kingdom happens. That's when division comes between, or separation comes between God and his people. It's when man is separated also from the land. It's, there's, the land is cursed. The, the relationships are all cursed. The relationships between man and wife are cursed. And so we see those are the effects of the fall. And those are felt by all men and women on the face of the earth. And so that, that separation gets even worse at the time of the flood because before that, it seems that everybody was vegetarian. And only after that are the flesh of animals given for man to eat as food. And so now all those things are going to be healed. The curse is going to be removed and blessing will come on God's people. And this is the kingdom we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see that blessedness restored in the realm we inhabit. And that's exactly what God's going to do because we see a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That is where we will be. Throughout eternity, we have a sphere and a realm which we have been given to have dominion over, and that dominion will then happen without sin and without the effects of the fall after Jesus comes and establishes the kingdom and turns it over to the Father, which is exactly what we're going to see at the end of the Corinthians passage. But but the animals kingdom and, and and humans will no longer be at enmity with one another. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So there'll be a blessedness over the entire earth. What, what would it be like to have a world without sin? What would it be like to have a world without pain? And, and that's the promise to which 
we're looking forward and to which we're called in Christ Jesus. And we're called to establish some of that on the earth now. We've been given a mission and a job to extend God's kingdom throughout the earth. And, and to the extent that God's kingdom is established in us, individually and collectively, then we're bringing that kingdom to the earth. We're not just proclaiming it. We're proclaiming it in thought, word, and deed. And so who we are is meant to display who we are to be. We're in process, no question, but that's the point. The point of giving the Holy Spirit is to extend God's kingdom in us and through us, through all the earth, and to take back what's been lost. In the gospel, the, so we get the story of the resurrection itself. Now, on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, uh, because the Sabbath is the seventh day, and so that's Saturday, so Sunday is the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And if you remember from Matthew's gospel, we're told that that tomb, that, that the rock was rolled across there, and it was sealed with an insignia, and guards were placed there. So she shows up before daylight. She can't wait to get there to do the work that she's got of preparing the body of Jesus. She so loved this man. If you, I've got a huge recommendation for you. If you have Prime Video or, or if you just want to get the app and watch it, go to Prime Video and, and look for The Chosen. Most extraordinary Christian thing I've seen in a million years. Well, at least back to the Passion of the Christ. But it, it is incredibly well done, and it begins with the story of Mary Magdalene. Now, they take license, obviously, in dramatizing this, but it's so scripturally based, it's unbelievable. And you'll see some things about Mary that, that will break your heart, and, you, and you'll see her say things like, what changed was when he said my name. He called me Mary. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in this gospel lesson. But I would highly, highly recommend The Chosen uh, on Prime Video, or you can get just download the app and watch it there. But, but she comes and she sees this stone rolled away from the tomb already. There's this ominous, ominous note of what in the world happened here. And now think with Mary as she comes there to, to do the duty of preparing Jesus' body with the spices and all that, to prepare it for proper burial. They were unable to do that on Friday because it was Good Friday, but it was the eve of Passover. And so when they cut Jesus down, they had to hurriedly do something. And so they took him and put him in this tomb without the normal burial preparations. It was scandalous, in fact, that he was in the tomb because he, he died on a cross, which makes him cursed. And typically they would throw the bodies outside the city. No burial at all. But here, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come, and they take the body. They say, we want that body. Nicodemus gave up everything in his life in order to do that. He turned his back on everything that had come before when he identified with Jesus, and so did Joseph of Arimathea, and they put him in a tomb. They gave him the, the best kind of burial they could give, but they had to get it done before the Passover began. So they, they had to do it quickly, and so the body wasn't prepared for that burial. So she, Mary Magdalene, saw the stone was rolled away and went and to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who was John himself, who was the gospel writer, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Well, they, she assumes that they, either the Romans or the Jewish leaders, have taken Jesus out of the tomb and put him somewhere else. Even though he talked about what would happen and that he would be the, resurrected from the dead on the third day, that is not what Mary believes happened here. 
as I said at the uh, conception, that the first people we know who didn't believe in a virgin birth were Joseph and Mary, because Mary said, how can such things be? And Joseph was going to put her away quietly and divorce her, because he didn't believe that she's a virgin anymore, if she's pregnant. And here, what we see is the, the people who we know first don't believe that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead are the people closest to him. We know here that Mary clearly wasn't thinking that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. They have taken him and laid him somewhere, and we don't know where. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So they're, they're anxious to see what in the world happened. Nobody looked at her and said, well, of course the tomb is empty, but your explanation is all wrong. He was going to be resurrected today. No, no, they can't believe what they've just heard, that the tomb is empty. What have they done with the body? And so they run to this place, and John tells us, well, I was faster than Peter, and I got there first. And stooping to look in, he, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. So he, you can just see John looking into the tomb. He's afraid to go into this place. Something nefarious has happened here, something that's inexplicable. But it would have looked like something weird happened. If they moved the body, why would they take the grave cloths off of him? Why would they do that? And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. John's just looking in. Peter goes in because he's, well, Peter. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, who would have taken the care to do such a thing? If you're just going to steal a body, why would you take the grave cloths off? Why would you do any of that? That doesn't make any sense. When he called Lazarus from the dead, he had to tell them to unbind Lazarus. After Lazarus came out of the tomb, he had to be told to be unbound. They had, he had to tell them to unbind him. Here, somebody came in and unbound him? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? If you're just moving a body, why would you take the grave cloths off of it and leave them lying there? There's some evidence here. But notice that he says that the, the face cloth wasn't with the other cloths. It was folded up in a place by itself. Sort of as though... Two different people were involved. One who removed the grave cloths and the other who took off this thing. This wasn't done in a hurry. It was done in stages. And it seems so strange to even think that they would anybody would do such a thing. Like I said, if you're just taking a body, you don't take the grave cloths off of it. What, what's going on here? They would, they would have been completely confused by what they saw, but something about it, it seems, caused John something else, though, right? He says, then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. So what did he believe? Because we know that later that night, they're hiding behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. So did, did they believe that Jesus was resurrected and just taken up into heaven? Is that what John believed? It's hard to tell what he believes here. But, but what I think we can rule out is that he, he no longer believed Mary's story. He didn't believe that they had taken the body and laid it somewhere else. I think John believed some kind of resurrections happened here. There's more at work than meets the eye based on the fact of those cloths. 
Mary didn't look in. All we're told with Mary is she just saw the stone had been rolled away, and so she then ran to Peter. Um, John took the time to look in. Peter took the time to go into the tomb, that boldness of going into that place without fear. But John, it says, he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And, And I would add parenthetically, apparently without telling anybody. They just went home. Sort of like later when they just go fishing. They don't know what to do. Even if you believed here, what do you do with that? It doesn't seem that they told anyone at all. They just went home. Hard to believe that would be our reaction, but I hate to say this. It happens every single Sunday, including Easter Sunday. There's a great many people who only come to church on Easter, and then they go home. They might go out to eat first, but then they go home. My huge injunction is let's not be those people. Let's not ever, 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 ever be those people. Let's always go forth rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit when we leave a worship service, when we consider worship service to be anytime we commune with God, whether it's in prayer and His Word, together with others, whatever it is, but but let's not be those who just go home after they believe. So the disciples went back home, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. That's her first time in. And she saw, Peter was in there, remember. John looked in there. But Peter went in. She saw two angels in white standing where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They weren't there when Peter went in there. They were there because she stayed. Like Miriam did when they put the basket containing Moses in it into the Nile. Miriam stood and waited to see what would happen next. Mary, in her grief, can't leave. But then, for whatever reason, she decided to look into the tomb. And for looking in there, she sees two angels in white standing where the body had been laying. One at the top, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've lain him. She still believes the same thing she told the disciples. This is exactly the same thing. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. She's disbelieving because it can't possibly be true. It's, it's, it's the furthest thing from her mind that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Having said this, she turned away from looking in, which I can't imagine how you could do that, and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Why? I mean, she knew him. She had been with him these years. She'd been part of the apostolic band, and yet she doesn't recognize him. Why would you not recognize somebody in that situation? Well, have you ever been somewhere where we didn't expect to see somebody and then startled that, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so. And she couldn't believe it because it was the least possible thing she could have imagined. The one thing that can't be true is that can't be Jesus standing here. So she's in her grief. She can't see him, even though she knows him well. She didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Exactly the same question the angels ask. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. 
She still believes it. She's clinging to the story that she, she has to believe. It's the only possible explanation. What could have happened here? And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. The thing that I could never have imagined. The thing that can't possibly be true is true. He's standing there and he's calling her by her name. And it's when he says her name that she recognizes him. Not when he says, woman, why are you weeping? But when he says, Mary. And there's nothing more heartbreaking than to hear his voice. Calling us by name out of love. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I I can't even begin, I don't think, to imagine the joy that Mary experienced in that moment. All her grief had turned to joy in one instant, the instant that he said her name. It's an extraordinary thing. And I can't, like I said, never experienced the depth of that grief turned to that, that height of joy in an instant. And yet it was. And can you imagine being with the disciples and seeing this woman come in, the woman that you saw just not too long ago, who was desolate, now comes in. Can you imagine the look on Mary's face when she walks into that room and tells those disciples, I've seen the Lord and not where I thought I would see him. I talked to him. He called me by name. He told me to tell you guys what was going to happen next. She's the first person Jesus sends, the resurrected Jesus sends with a message. It's a woman and an interesting woman with an interesting past at that. And yet, because she tarried, because she waited, because of the depth of her love for Jesus that caused her to stay there in that place, the last place she had seen him laid. She was rewarded by seeing two angels and talking to Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But we can have that same experience, and we will have that same experience ultimately. But, but we can experience that now. We can experience that joy right this minute. Because whatever it is, the burdens that you're carrying— Know that you're not alone. You have a Savior. You have Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. And and the first person to whom he revealed himself after the resurrection was a woman we believe to have been a prostitute. I don't know who you are, but that's so comforting to me to think that whatever sins, whatever baggage I might drag into the picture— I can still be chosen by him to be his messenger, to go and share the gospel with other people, because I have been. But, but it's, it, it's amazing to me. I mean, people who've known me for a long time probably think, there's no way in the world. There's no way in the world John's a pastor. It's, how could he possibly be that guy? It's, it's beyond belief. It's beyond your wildest dreams and your greatest hopes that Jesus Christ has been resurrected and from the dead, and because he has, so will you. And that's exactly what Paul says. And, and Paul's pointing us in the same way that Solomon points us in Ecclesiastes. He's pointing us away from earth. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
because we're just going to receive persecution. Like Paul, that's exactly what he's saying. Hey, if all I got is hope in this life, that ain't much. We should be pitied if that's all it is, he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. That's us. <laughs> then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and power. So Paul's saying, we are now living in the in-between time, in between the coming of Jesus in order to save the world and the coming of Jesus in order to judge the world. And in this in-between time, Paul says, make the most of everything you've got. Make the most of it, because your hope doesn't end with the grave. Jesus overcame that. He overcame the greatest fear of all mankind, that this is all there is. There ain't no more. And he overcame that fear. In his resurrection from the dead this day if that happened is there anything that's too hard for god that he could resurrect his son from the dead after all that he suffered at the hands of the romans after the beatings the scourgings crucifixion all of that that man was resurrected from the dead whole and healed it's an amazing thing to even consider that possibility and to know that that that's the gift that he gives to you is eternal life, not because of anything you've done, but because you believe in his son and all he has done to gain you eternal life. And we know that God accepted his sacrifice because he's resurrected from the dead, the only man ever to be resurrected from the dead. That has implications for all kinds of things, right? I mean, it has implications for who he must have been and how perfect he must have been. And that's what we see in Revelation 5 when it said there's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was found worthy to take the scroll from the one seated on the throne. And then suddenly appears one, a lamb looking like it was slain that the angels had proclaimed as the Lion of Judah, And John looks, and instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb looking like it was slain. And then that lamb gets up and he goes to the throne and it takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne. And then all heaven breaks forth in praise and worship of that lamb who is Jesus. The perfect Passover lamb, the one who kept all the law without any failure or shortcoming. And because he did, and he takes our sin on him and transfers his righteousness to us... God sees him when he sees us to the extent that we go to that cross, lay hands on that cross, leave our sins there day by day by day, and believe in that exchange that Jesus, out of love, is willing to take it all for us and has already done so. That work is finished. Jesus said it himself, it is finished, and then he died. He's given us the opportunity to participate in the life of the Trinity. He's given us to, uh, the ability to participate in that loving relationship that transcends any other loving relationship you could ever have. If you're married, don't worry about it because that's this is better. It's deeper. It's permanent. It's without condition. It's an important thing for us to get our heads around and our hands around to say that, that he loves us so much, that he loves us more than any human being is capable of loving us. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We've got to see the destruction of the the unseen realm 
We've got to see all his enemies, and his enemies are all demonic entities. Those angels that were created that turned from worship of the one true and living God to worshiping something else and abuse their power and torment the children of God. We're going to see them defeated so that we'll know that in the eschaton, in the life of the world to come, we will not fight those battles any longer. All of that will be gone. And we'll live in his blessed kingdom under his rule and reign. And the last enemy, he says, to be destroyed is death. And all of that then is swallowed up and all that's left is life. That's the vision. That's the vision for what's to come. And then Paul says, all right, if you catch that vision, run that race. Throw off everything that hinders you from running that race and run that race faithfully to the end. But you can run it no matter how much persecution you have with joy for the hope of that which awaits. And we know that that hope is sure because today Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead.